Hello, humans. We are here for the Weekly Vine Down, a show where we cover lots of topics in higher ed, ranging from professional development stuff to data stuff to student search stuff. And today is a data show. I have my calculator ready. This is how I do math at my home office. So uh, that's kind of the level at which I'm hoping to uh, excel beyond today with my guest, uh, Kate Ralston. Kate um, is PhD. Hi. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, Kate, I would like our audience to get to know like human you as well as um, get to know a presentation that you gave at Acrosem a couple of months ago. And Kate, weren't you like awarded prizes for this presentation? This was like a lot, a highly lauded presentation. Um, yeah, it was recognized a little bit. So. <laughs> Do you like that? Do you like how the guest waves it and like just shoves it under the carpet? Okay, highly lauded. Highly popular, highly attended presentation oh, at Acrosem. And I realize that not a lot of us can all go to these presentations um, and go to these conferences. Last Acrosem was in Seattle. It was hard to get to. Um, and it's a small group. And this presentation does a couple of things, or the session Kate gave does a couple of things, I think, really effectively. Um, the first thing it does is that it highlights student mobility. And by that, I mean, like, the tolerance by which students could travel far from home or not to go to, to a particular college. Um, and has helped this uh, Kate's team at Iowa to be really intense about actually exactly where to spend their time and resources, like with whom to spend their time based on likelihood of enrollment enrolling. And the second thing that this presentation, I think, does sort of by accident, interestingly, is that it proves you can learn a lot from some pretty easily accessible data. I think particularly those of us who work at smaller institutions who don't have a team of Kate's um, and her ilk, that... I think we get feeling like before they even start, we get shut down by data analysis and data problems because we just sort of assume like, okay, that's too big. I can't chew that big bite. I'm just not going to chew it. So um, I think that's the other thing that this, uh, that the Kate session did really well is just to talk about um, sort of the, the ease of, of accessing um, these particular data sets. So Kate, you are, you lead the data team at, at Iowa. Um, you are, you've been a faculty member, you're a social scientist, you're a teacher, you're a presenter, um, and you're really passionate about making data actionable, um, which which in my mind, you're like the Brene Brown of, as a social scientist, you're like the Brene Brown oh, of come on. data. Get out of here. No, I'm into Not it. Not them close, but um, thank you. My aspirational Vine Down guest, Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, so, Kate, just to warm us up and for the audience to get to know, like, human, awesome, human you, um, I want to ask you this question that we ask all of our guests in the beginning. Um, what are three key lessons you've learned in your career? What would you like to share with our group? All right. Thank you, Emily, for having me. And uh, three things. So uh, I've been in enrollment management for about, I don't know, a little little over 10 years. So the first thing that I found super helpful is find somebody on your team, somebody who you work with, who can challenge you, not bully you, not like mm. oppress you or question your professional and abilities, but somebody who is willing to think about what you're doing and give it enough time and thought to ask you the questions to kind of guide you through a blind spot because sometimes we are conditioned to think that if somebody disagrees with us or asks questions, it equals hostility, but it doesn't have to be. It just leads to a better outcome. So that's that was super helpful. And I'm lucky to have people like this 
around. Is that something you always do? Like when you land at a new institution, you're like looking around, casting about like for your challenge. Oh, cool. Yeah, who can just smack me? But no, I, I was just naturally falling into people who feel comfortable doing that. And it's super healthy. Okay, this, cool. Number one, comes, find a challenge partner. Love that. Second thing is, um, and as you said, I was a social scientist um, before this iteration. And I learned this the hard way and I'm still learning, but you got to make things simple. So as social scientists, especially those who do like quantitative research, we are judged a little bit on how complex things can be. You know, it's a point oh, of pride. Sure. But in the applied line of work that I'm in right now, ultimately people just want to have an insight that they can grasp fast, explain to people fast, and then just do something with it and then move on. And uh, that hurts, you know, the process ego of me and then you geeky methodologists, but that's fine. So just make it simple, give people what they need. And uh, number three is remember the purpose. And this is important because people who are not um, customer facing, who are numbers facing most days, um, it's very easy to get detached from what we're doing so it becomes work for the sake of work but really you know if you think about higher ed and i'm maybe a little naive still maybe a little idealistic but we serve young people we serve their families and um, we don't serve some i know warehouse god or something so if we think about people it makes the work more meaningful and leads to just doing better work so yeah that's awesome i mean kate your tagline is like love people, use data, not the other way around, which I think is really, really like visible to me in that third thing. And on the second order, like uh, that's actually something we talk about in technology all the time is to make things simple. I think Steve Jobs was really outspoken um, in his career about hitting things with a simple stick, which was a really good way, like a, a good mindset to bring into a room when you're really like wrestling with big complicated problems. It's just like, what can we simplify? What can we what can we limit scope on um, to get even a crisper, clearer um, answer and outcomes? I think also in your perspective, the uh, sort of push for more complexity because you are doing data within academia is mm -hmm. potentially really loud. And I really like how you called that out to say like, look, we don't have to complicate things just like for fun. Uh, let's make sure if we're doing complicated work, we can uh, really like actually learn from it. I love that. Yeah. You have to be able to explain it. If it takes you forever to explain what you're doing, then it's not too much. Possible. It's too much. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So let's dive into your, uh, to this presentation. So, uh, I know we're not going to go through the slides and I think you had like close to 50 slides here. Um, so you won't get the, the whole presentation here. But tell the audience what problem you were trying to solve in this in this study, because you were looking at data from about 10 years. But what problem were you trying to solve? So a couple of things. So we're all talking about the demographic cliff, the change in demand for higher ed. So everybody in the business is freaking out a little bit about the truth being in the game, being competitive, being relevant, you know, all of these things. And Iowa is an interesting state because we are, um, we're not giant, we're 3 million people in the state and we have roughly 35, 38,000 high school seniors every year. And we graduate about 90% of them. And then it kind of goes down real fast because about 
I don't know, three quarters say they want to go to college, but only two thirds actually do. And then when they do, 15% or so leave state to go somewhere else. And so we kind of have this dwindling down population from within the state and from the outside of state. You know, it's very common. Iowa, is it in Idaho? You know, people don't fully have the awareness of where we are. And um, so it presents some challenges. But within the state, we also have um, three large publics. We have 31 um, small privates, uh, four-year colleges, and 19 community colleges. So we have a lot to offer to a very, very small group of students. So it's so, um yeah in many ways you've been like running the demographic cliff in a microcosm just within your own state for a long time because that pic- picture you're painting of like lots of competition it's i mean yeah. even sort of central location like students with with means and ability could leave the state pretty easily and get yeah. to lots of places um you have a very small population i think one of the things that really like made me scratch my head is just you know, with a with a full student population of right around 30,000, that includes graduate students, but like even just like a, you know, 23,000 undergraduate population, that's like 1% of the whole state's population. Like yeah. it's a, you're, you're like really fighting for um, a, a lot of students in the sort of like mm-hmm. microcosm so demographic cliff. Okay. So that's sort of like the landscape of things in Iowa. And what were you setting out to to do? Like what what were the what were you setting so, out to do in the study? Yeah. So we were trying to figure out what makes students leave the state with their end to come to higher education because we we gotta look uh, broadly for our student populations and to see what attracts them, first of all, to go someplace else out of state, and second, does it matter? Uh, or does it mean anything for us specifically as the university? So um, usually when we talk about competition analysis, you know, the pattern is kind of the same for everybody. We wait for uh, clearinghouse data to come in and then we bounce it against the census, see uh, who got away, where they went, um, figure out the proportion of uh, usual suspects. It's kind of the same. You have the right. same set of competitors, and then you wait another year, and you kind of you're satisfied. But um, I feel like we can do more, and we should be doing more because the situation is changing pretty rapidly. So we need to really be mindful about who we're competing with and who is the true competition set. And that becomes especially apparent when on campus when you talk to faculty. It's very interesting because faculty is kind of at the helm of um, making the students student experience in college. But when you talk to them and say, you know, who who are your competitors? Who do you think? We get the answers there. Well, Harvard, Yale, MIT. We're like, well, yeah. So that's you know that's hard to beat if your uh, primary competition set is like this. So we wanted to dig a little deeper and give maybe our campus partners a little more resources to get real. real To understand, yeah, like what's, what really, what the the competition is. And this is something that I think schools like at a, at a, at a top strategic level, this is something that schools to your point, like, and God bless you for asking the faculty, because I'm sure you got just kind of answers that were like on the outer limits of crazy. But like, even if you ask admissions and enrollment folks who should know this like sort of market research data, they will often name competitors who are not real. And that, 
your whole, all of the set of cascading behaviors that you direct your admission office to go and do, if you don't know who your competitors are and you go and spend all this time in the wrong place, then from the top down, like we sort of have a broken machine. Yep. Pretty much. Pretty much. And then, you know, even the landscape itself can create this false sense of uh, mm. competition and this frantic kind of behavior. Because again, in Iowa with so many small privates, you know, the first idea is, oh, these are all our competitors. So this is all who we are up against. And part of this project was also to see is this actually so? Is Are we just one school against the whole world? Or maybe it's less less scary out there. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get to outcomes in a second, but tell, tell mm -hmm. us about the data set that you use to do this. Cause I think this is, again, the sort of the second point I made, which is like the data set that you used is not in it in and of itself earth shattering. So what did you go and grab to do this? Okay. So not earth shattering is the truth. <laughs> So we um, basically pulled together the 10 years of uh, census data that we had. So from application to enrollment, and we added uh, National Student Clearinghouse for the same population, so same 10 years. And then we went a little bit, um, I don't know, deeper, broader, however you want to think about it. But so NSC gives us usually the two characteristics for the school, private or public and two or four years. And mm -hmm. that's great and that's super convenient, but it's not always enough. So okay. we went into iPads database, which is free, and we got the institutional character characteristics file, which is pretty stable, doesn't change all that much. So you can use it for uh, a long time. And that gives you a whole lot more information because it gives you the location, like rural, urban. It gives you medical school, hospital on campus. It's relevant to us because we have both. Mm -hmm. And um, a few more things, including uh, latitude, longitude, uh, zip code. And those are very powerful things because you can calculate distances from everything to everything. And uh, we have a team of very talented undergraduate students who work in on our team, on data team here, and they ran this endless loop to create triads of closest higher education um, entities. So three closest four-year publics, three closest uh, small privates, three closest community colleges within state, and the same for closest out of state to every student in our um, zip code database. And yep. it it gives you a lot of interesting perspectives because usually we see how far students come to us, but to see where they actually ended up and how far they went, that gives you a little bit more. So right, because your population were like students who enrolled somewhere. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's it. You did like a very broad slice on like domestic students who enrolled somewhere. And then exactly. you overlaid, like, what does it mean for us? And mm -hmm. okay, okay, cool. So you took these this data set, which like, and I heard you mention like the, um, some of the data that's free for everybody and National Clearinghouse, iPads is free for everybody. And the National Clearinghouse is um, widely purchased and used. And I think mm -hmm. most institutions have that. Um, plus then just uh, census and publicly available like distance information. Mm -hmm. Um Okay, so students who domestic students who enrolled somewhere and wanted to see sort of their perspective on mobility. 
Okay, tell us what you learned. Let's dive in. Sure. So before we do, one more thing yeah. that we did is we calculated or we created the size index using iPads. So because you can buy size and selectivity from, I think, NCS, but you can do it in home. So we are all for do-it-yourself when you can. So created the size for each school and created the selectivity index using the um, uh, admit ratios and the academic information through iPads. So Basically, all of that gives you a very robust thing. So what did we find? Let me think. Again, nothing earth shattering, but very interesting. So first question was what, what makes students leave the state to go- like Leave their, their home state where like, you're not talking about just yes. students in Iowa. You're saying yeah. like in general, so this is relevant for everybody watching. Exactly. In general, what, student, what makes students leave their mm -hmm. own home states? Yep. And so okay. we fed, um, a few variables. So we used your normal academic, demographic, um, geographic as well. So where they are and um, how far they're going. And we also fed the SIP families. So the large uh, denominations of disciplines, right? So engineering at large, health professions at large. So we fed a variety of things that have the most um, interest for our university. So what we found is that students um, students are willing to travel if they don't have anything close by. But if they have an institution that is like the one they had in mind, and they'll talk about it in, in a moment. So we're a large public institution. So most everybody who applied to us was interested in something like that. So if they have a large public nearby, we are kind of hosed, so it's not going to happen for us. They're not going to travel unless we are that public institution. Right. So for the students, in other words, mm -hmm. like for the students who are familiar with another Big Ten school or for another large public institution and live closer to that, they are more likely to go to that type of institution if it is yep. closer to them. Okay. Yep. So, yep. Distance matters. But however, if you have an out-of-state institution that is similar, to the one that is in your state, like let's say, I don't know, our peer, but um, outside the state, and the student lives closer to that, they'll go there, chances are. So it's a, it's a good predictor that um, they, they would be more likely to travel. But then another thing that we're finding is that students will travel for a small private out of state or for highly selective institutions. And those are, I think, pretty straightforward to kind of explain. If you're traveling to highly selective, you can, and you're willing, and you're uh, honored, interested. But the smaller privates, they, our theory right now is that it's the um, financial aid or the scholarship that they're providing because we're not able to compete at that level. So, but that's, again, that's a small proportion of students in our data set who does that. So disciplines were interesting because the um, common sense kind of thing that I heard over and over again is that students wouldn't travel for a business college because every institution in their state has a business program that's just so mainstream, they will go there. But in our case, what I'm finding is that students are actually very willing to leave their home state for um, a degree in business. 
at large. So if you take this SIP family for that, so. Like that's a particularly mobile, that's a particularly mm -hmm. mobile academic area of interest. They can be probably a little more discerning. And if it's a particularly a stronger student, if they are interested in business, they want to find a better program that suits them. So Got it. for all practical purposes. On that first order of students, that first group who was just sort of like your generalized outcome, not relative to the SIP outcome, mm -hmm. not relative to the SIP families around academic areas of interest, but for the students who are applying to large public institutions who have a closer to them large public institution, um, in seeing that they're more likely to enroll, is your outcome to think like, okay, the admissions office should not go spend time there or spend more time in order to win them? Like what's your, what's like the downstream thing that's happening in the office now that everyone knows this? Sure. So um, again, things matter to us that related to academics. So we need to look at students who are maybe in the backyard of our other peer Big Ten or just a large public institution, but whose profile maybe doesn't quite fit that institution's mainstream student. So that's where we can work with the population. So we can be a little bit more selective in terms of how we spend our time and effort. Gotcha. And how do you question about just like process? Because I, mm -hmm. I, w I experienced you as you like rolled this information out to like a whole professional conference. Just in terms of like, you've solved a data problem, you did a big piece of analysis with a big piece of data, you involved your student workers, and you then had to sort of like roll this out to a team of people who will then go make decisions about certain, like certain recruiting behaviors, right? Because you're, it's, you're, you're on the hook to like, provide the insight, yeah. and others in your team, because it's a very large office, very large team, others on your team will have to make meaning of that and then go drive recruiter behavior, right? Like mm -hmm. the data has to like live in the data land and then also translate into like, okay, what are we going to do with this on earth? Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you just point a process, how you rolled this out to your team. Did you repeat it? Did you like, did you go multi-channel just to get this information known across your own team? How did you communicate it? So we're still in terms of the actual data pieces. So we're still making sense of it before we roll out the strategy of any sort. But we have been building some elements of it into our historic dashboards because it's um, you want to make your data practical. So if people can go and see it and you know flip the switches and see where they land, that becomes more interesting. So we're trying just slowly kind of introduce people to that. So. Uh, enhance the co uh, competition dashboard and with all the things that we've built, built in the distances to a certain extent. So one of the conversations we have in the office is that we're known as the writing university. So mm -hmm. the assumption is that, oh, we're going to just go blanket everybody who has, uh, um, who is a budding writer, right? But in reality, it's a very small fragment of what we can offer and so we can't just make living on that alone but what is fascinating is that the students who are interested in english and creative writing in our pool they're willing to travel the farthest out of state so over 700 miles yeah i mean anecdotally i went into college mm -hmm. thinking i was gonna i mean and i ended up majoring in english but 
Iowa was on my radar for that reason. I mean, like knowing that that, you know, and I was a student in the Philadelphia area. So I was considering traveling a long, long way for, um, for that. I mean, it really is a specialty. Um, but I think what you're saying is, you know, there's a, there's a lot you can do sort of to operationalize data. There's a lot you can do to make these things present in dashboards. There's a lot you can make that do to make your work intelligible. And I, I see that a lot of institutions, I think they're sort of the first order change of like, can we solve, can we solve problems with data? And a lot of institutions cannot, right? Like they're, you're fighting, um, a lot of fires on a lot of different fronts and getting strategic with data is not one of them. If there were a data problem to solve beyond like hygiene in your CRM, competition analysis, in my opinion, would be something to spend time on. And Kate, to your point, like it doesn't have to be like, how long did this project take you with your team? So the the biggest part was to figure out the distances from every student to every institution. But once the loop was written, it was, I don't know, it took us maybe three months to figure okay. that piece out. The rest is really very small cleaning, just merging the iPads with NSC, with Census. It's all very straightforward and uh, is worth it too. So it's a very small, I don't know, couple weeks maybe. Okay. For all, yeah. So that feels that. very achievable. So you're saying, yeah. So to operationalize data well, if you're your sort of general operations in your CRM are clean enough, then the, this competition analysis is really, really important because it can help you drive be, like recruiter behavior because otherwise you're just sort of spending time in ways that you don't really know if you're going to be effective, um, which is always something to do a sort of a check on is if you're leading admissions teams or if you're on an admissions team, I would encourage you to ask like, how do we know why are we going to do this? And how do we know this will work? And how will we know it's not working? Those are all Three great questions to ask and to try to get some backup on data. Yeah, um, but also, may I just add? Please. I think what's important, and because again, we're still making sense of uh, all the features that we built in and that's mm -hmm. available. So um, it's important to try at least something and then let go if it doesn't work or just a lot of a lot at stake, but also a lot at stake if you don't do anything. So it makes sense to at least try a few things and see. Yeah. Someone said last week to me, like, you don't learn to drive in a parked car. And I don't know why that felt like that was a thing that could get me into action, but it did. Like, to your point, you have to try something and have to try to, to mm -hmm. learn from it. And when we were talking before this session, you had sort of said, like, we didn't really know what we were going to find. And that was okay we have some useful outcomes, but there's like, there are the outcomes that we have about student mobility, which will be important. And then there's this second order learning, which is like, there's some data that's easy for us to get. And mm -hmm. distance data is really powerful for us. And we will likely sort of hone, continue to hone behaviors based on um, this strong competitor and mobility analysis. Like, I think those are the sort of the second order things that you you learned when you put you know this project to, to on the ground. I think the coolest thing that we learned is how consistent students are in their choice because we, I have a, a high school senior right now. And so, and so are a lot of my colleagues and friends. And so what's interesting is the senses like, oh, they don't know. They're still kind of floundering around, but students are so deliberate about what they want. And we found it on this data set, 10 years worth of um, data, including 
our university. So we weren't kind of special. We were just one of the universities in that data set. And the students who applied to us as a large public, uh, over 80% of them ended up in a large public or a very large public institution. So, you know, even though we're surrounded by small, robust private institutions, this is not our primary market. And very few students actually ended up in a school that is very much unlike ours. And yeah. that's, um, you can trust your students in terms of, and that was true for selectivity, for uh, size, for public-private. So all of these instances alone or together, students right, are like very- they'll show you. Yeah, mm-hmm. they'll show you. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. The consistency is really interesting, especially over 10 years when some of those years included COVID years, right? That behavior really like flattens out over time. Yeah. Um, well, Kate, I will, I will invite our, our audience to ask us questions again, like we're live. We don't do a live show for our own health. We do it so we can hear from our audience. So folks out there in college vine, vine down land, if you would like to ask us any questions or if you want to um, ask Kate anything, please let us know in the comments. We will see them. We will answer your questions as we wrap up. But Kate, as we wrap up here, I want to ask you the question we ask all of our higher ed leaders in this series. What are you excited about in the next six months? We talk about tough stuff on the Vine Down sometimes, and we like to end. I feel it's auspicious talking to you in Iowa the day after the caucus. But um, what are you <laughs> excited about in the next six months? All right, it's um, personal and professional together. As I said, I have a high school senior, so we are living the whole admission cycle process as as we live it. So I have not been a parent on the other side yet. So observing and going through this process as a parent has been both um, nerve-wracking, revelationary, um, exciting, but I ultimately want to see where Lucas will actually go because he has, we've seen uh, the process through both actually large publics and small privates because he has an an interesting kind of choice, that choice set, I guess, that he made. So that's, I think that's what I'm looking at. And as we experienced a lot of college visits and forms and essays and everything, I I'm trying to figure out how we can simplify this for families down the road because I don't know how people who don't work in admissions help their children to through this process. And I'm not saying like, oh, write essay for them. That's not the issue. No, just the navigate like this form at this time it. and these deadlines and exactly you should, should think about building a list. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's really tough it's work. Incre- incredibly difficult. And I know because, again, we live in this world, we try to make it as transparent, as user-friendly, as, um, I don't know, clear for the kids and for the parents. But it's still a very big process. So, well, yeah. I mean, I think we were talking about this earlier in the week, Kate, but there's like, if if we were building a consumer product, we would talk about a user journey, a user experience, mm-hmm. and then backwards engineer that product to fit the needs of the user and to or, like organize around the student journey. Yep. And because higher education has been a thing for so long, the business process 
is held at the at sort of the like the front of everything that we do in enrollment. Yeah. Like this business process is like the thing, and then we ram that down the users, the students, the families. We ram that down their throats, which is so backwards to what we know today about customer experience and customer journey. Um, and yet here we are. I mean, I think we are now as schools operationalized enough that we could redesign the student journey, but everyone's going to be doing it slightly differently. And even as an insider, you're saying like to navigate these forms, these deadlines, it's all these, it's, it's all these things. All right. Yeah. We'll keep us posted on where Lucas <laughs> ends up. Thank you. And I'm just yes. picturing your like internal monologue, like be cool, be cool, be cool, be cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to be the parent that doesn't ask a lot of questions on the tour and doesn't hover, but I just want to know, <laughs> how do you guys do that? <laughs> You're like, what interested observer, why are you showing me this stairwell? <laughs> yeah. You have no idea how many schools take pride in their first floor of the library. That's like the highlight of all the journeys. And this is our library. It houses 13 books million books. You might never use. So, but that's, I mean, I was a tour guide. I brought people into the library. I thought it was cool. And then I would promptly fall backwards down the library steps. Yeah. yeah. Pro. Been there. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about that. And I'm, I, I love how you're approaching even like Lucas's college journey, like your kid's college journey with the eye of a social task scientist. Like, what can I learn here? And this revelation, this huge revelation around sort of process and clarity, I think is really important. And I can't mm -hmm. feel like that's going to bubble up to be your next, your next project. Oh, we'll see. Yeah. Thank Any you. Any next projects in the hopper? Oh, quite a few, but nothing that is uh, shaped yet. So I'll share. Top, top secret Russian spy. Top secret right stuff. now. Yeah. Great. Kate, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a long time in coming. If, if audience, if you didn't catch my LinkedIn post about this, I literally walked up to Kate at a conference a couple of years ago and I was like, hey, you're cool. Can we hang out? And she was like, I don't know you, but okay. Yes. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank, thank you, you, Emily. Thank Good you for being you. on the show. And thank you for, for being uh, so smart and savvy about this data. Kate, we'll see you soon. Thanks very much. Bye.